surprise. So um, this morning we're going to be, just to give you a little bit of a roadmap, we're going to be covering one, uh, Psalm 130, Psalm 131. Next week we're going to be doing Psalm 132. And the following week we will wrap up our time in the Psalm of Ascents, after which we will then go back to the book of Joshua, which we left off last fall. So I'm excited to get into that, excited to get into a little bit of the history of Israel and how God fulfilled his promises. But for now, I'm excited to be especially here, because I think these are the two Psalms that we need the most in a week like this. Astonishing, unbelievable, tragic. These are the words that come to my mind as I look on the situation that's developed and is developing in Afghanistan over the past week and a half and, and even the past month. And in case you're unaware, uh, in the wake of the pullout of American and coalition troops, the Taliban uh, has begun reasserting their power and in a matter of, few we of a few weeks, the Afghan government collapsed. It's a total leadership overhaul that's left the nation in the clutches of a brutal regime. Now, I was in fifth grade when 9-11 um, happened, and uh, I remember that day significantly because I knew something had changed. And I knew that the trajectory of our generation was going to be different than I had thought. And then for the past 20 years, my generation has only ever known war. So I have a lot of complex feelings about what has been going on. Some, in some ways it feels like a waste. Somewhat it feels like it's a job unfinished. But among the greatest feeling that I have is a feeling of grief over the suffering that is coming out from our Christian brothers and sisters who are going through this as a result something that was preventable. Now, I was particularly compelled this week by one article by a guy named Mark Morris who recounts how he heard the news of what was happening while he was gathered with a group of Afghan pastors in a retreat in Memphis, Tennessee. So while these brothers were gathered together at this retreat, the initial reports of the takeover started coming out. And in this article, Mark tells about how they were singing a mighty fortress is our God, which is one of the songs that we have sung together this morning. And that as they were doing that, one of the Afghan brothers came up to him and whispered in his ear that Ashraf Ghani, which is Afghanistan's president, had just resigned and the Taliban was now in control. Even as they sang the verse together, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. How good it is to know that the God who keeps track of the tears of his people and the cries of his people also promises to wipe those tears away. So as I hear these reports of brothers and sisters who are being drugged from their homes and murdered, and the peace that they are feeling, even as they are on the phone with, with their friends elsewhere. That it is good to hear Jesus say, even as we get those reports, even as we hear about the earthquake in Haiti, to hear him say that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
How do we take heart in the midst of suffering? How does lament fuel faith and hope remain even while the world crumbles in around us? It remains because of the sure hope of the gospel, a hope that is grounded in the love of God, which never fails and which will never pass away. The modern church, especially here in the West, has forgotten the art of lament. It has in large part forgotten what it means to wait on a package, let alone to wait on the Lord. So this morning, what I want to do is to reacquaint you with this vital part of our relationship with God. We live in a world that is broken, which still remains for a time under the influence of Satan. As Christ's people here on earth, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So in the minutes that we have together this morning, as we look at these two psalms, my prayer is that God will not only give us the right heart to mourn and weep and to lament with those who are suffering, but that he'll also establish our hearts in the sure hope of eternal life that we have through faith in the work of Christ on our behalf. So let's begin by reading God's word. If you would please stand with me as we read these two beautiful psalms, Psalm 130 and Psalm 131. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the focus of these two psalms is on the hope that God gives to his people. This is a hope that remains in every circumstance. And more than that, it is a hope that is able to cry to God out of the depths of suffering, which is held fast by his faithfulness and by his deliverance. So the main idea of our sermon 
is, is, is inform, informed by that is simply this, as an appeal to you. Oh, church, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Our aim this morning is to see what that actually looks like. What does it mean for our hearts to hope in God? Well, I have three answers from these psalms for that question. The heart that hopes in God first relies on his redemption. The heart that hopes in God relies on him for his redemption. Second, it longs for him with deepest affection. It longs for him with deepest affection. And finally, it finds contentment in humility. It finds contentment in humility. Now, it is hard for me to think of Psalm 130 as anything less than the pinnacle of the songs of ascents. It rises like a mountain from the sea of distress to make us, to set us secure in the incredible promises of God to free us, to forgive us, and to redeem us from our sin. The psalmist begins in this song with a cry to God for help. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now these opening words sound quite similar to the words that Jonah prayed while he was in the, in the belly of the fish. We see that it's a song uh, that is a cry for deliverance, not so much as an appeal to God for justice, as we've seen in some of the other songs that we have considered in our time of the songs of ascents, but rather that it is a cry to God for mercy. It's a prayer to God that focuses on his forgiveness. Now, while we're not exactly told why, what the psalmist was going through when he composed this psalm, what the depths were that he cried from, we can all relate to his condition, can't we? The psalmist may have been in the midst of some very severe physical suffering, but the depths from which he cries uh, really comes from his realization of his sinful condition. This psalm is an appeal to God to relieve not only the symptoms of suffering, but the source of it. Suffering in this world has a source, and that source, the Bible tells us, is sin. In Romans 5, verse 12, Paul explains that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and that death entered the world through sin. So, he says, death spread to all men because all have sinned. So even though our sin may not be like the sin of Adam, we find that sin reigns over all of us. It is, uh, it is what we rightly deserve. That, that, that death is what right, we rightly deserve because we're all rebels. We have all sinned against God, and we fall short of his glory. Now the psalmist is well aware of this reality. In verse 3, he observes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Which is, uh, which is to say that if God did not show mercy, but instead if he called us to account for what we have done for our sin, then there is not one of us who could stand before him. Our righteous deeds, we are told, are but filthy rags in the sight of a pure God. They are unclean because even if those deeds may be noble or good, they are polluted because they have been carried out by wicked hearts which are estranged from God. Now before we can really appreciate God's work of redemption, 
We have to see ourselves in our true state apart from Christ the way the psalmist does. As long as we are blind to the significance of our sin and the wickedness of our hearts, we will never feel the urgency of the situation of our souls. The roaches that infest our souls are invisible to us until the Holy Spirit shines the light of God's holiness on our hearts. I believe that the grief of the psalmist's soul here in verse 1 is not just over the circumstances of his suffering, but over the source of it. His grief is for his own sin, and his cries to God are for mercy, because he knows that if the Lord marked his iniquity, he would have no hope to stand before him. No amount of good deeds can take the focus of God's righteous anger from our iniquity. This cry in verse 1 is from a soul that knows the severity of the consequences of sin. What we have here is a key example of what it means to have a heart that is truly repentant. That it's, this is what it looks like to have a heart of faith. And without that, we cannot lay claim on God's gift of forgiveness. So before we get to the rest of the passage, we need to take these opening verses to heart. We must learn to lament the way the psalmist laments here. We must learn to grieve the way he grieves. As much as it is tempting, as much as we may want to flee the discomfort that we feel over our sin, the psalmist shows us that it's actually a good thing to have our hearts laid bare, to have them cut to the quick over the sin, over our sin, so that we may then be exposed to the healing mercy and the true forgiveness of the Lord who forgives our iniquity and redeems us from that sin. When there is no grief, there is no conviction. And where there is no conviction, it is evident that a heart is still dead. So it is good for us to learn from this psalm, to ask ourselves whether our hearts truly lament our sin, whether we mourn over our suffering, or whether we have truly come to lament the source of that suffering. When Jesus was on earth, it was the lame, the sick, the blind, the tax collectors, the sinners who cried to him for mercy because they knew the desperation of their situation and they saw that he could set them free. The Pharisees felt that they were well and so they despised Christ. So it stands that only the heart of the person who laments their sin is in a, really in a position to call upon the name of the Lord for deliverance. That's the main activity of the psalmist's heart here. O oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. When we get a true picture of our sin, then we realize that we aren't in a position to presume upon God's forgiveness. Rather, we come to see that we must appeal to God, to keep his very great promises, that all who call upon him will be saved. I think that the psalmist shows us how to balance conviction with faith. Out of the depths of his troubled soul, we see that he cries to God because he knows, verse 4, that with God there is forgiveness. He knows that if God held him accountable in his perfect justice for his sin, then he could never stand before him. 
But the reason he cries to God and says, Lord, hear my voice, is because he knows that with God there is forgiveness, which he pours out freely on all who trust in him. Now, confession is hard. Confession is one of those spiritual disciplines that most of us would rather be without. Admitting you were wrong is difficult enough. Admitting that to another person, especially when you have caused significant harm to them, maybe in ways that they don't even know or aren't even aware of, that is something wholly other. It twists our stomach. It makes us feel sick. Most of us would just prefer to forget about it. How tempting it is to let sin go on unconfessed, especially if that person really isn't aware of the extent to which you have sinned against them. In that moment, anything else seems better than the agony of watching the shock come on the face of a person that you love. Why does God call us then to confess our sins both to to Him and to each other? Because where there is confession of sin with Him, there is forgiveness. And there is forgiveness because of Christ. In confession, God gets glory over sin. And our hearts grow to love Him and to fear Him as they ought to. I love how the psalmist ties these two critical parts of knowing God and relating rightly to God together. He says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see that there? That forgiveness from God results in fearfulness of God. Not the sort of anxiety and fear that comes on sinners in the face of God's wrath, but the sort of fear of God that comes with seeing God rightly in the perfection of His beauty, in awe and wonder and reverence and love. You get a real sense of the complexity of what the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord from the way the psalmist characterized, talks about, and sings about God's forgiveness. We see that the fear of the Lord is what characterizes the heart of a person who's been made right with Him, someone who's been restored to God. The fear of the Lord is what comes when a person is given a new heart with the right sort of affections for God. It's the way that a son or a daughter relates to a loving and good father, which leads them to want to listen and to want to obey and to want to please Him because they know that He loves them unconditionally And they want to do everything they can to honor him. The fear of the Lord is the result of God's forgiveness. It's what gives us confidence that even while we know that we are unworthy in and of ourselves of his love, he has chosen to love us anyway and to make us something lovely through his work of redemption. In order for us to hope in God, we must first learn to grieve our sin and to trust in his work of redemption. This is the hope that remains with us in the midst of every circumstance because we know that he is eager to hear the cries of those who trust him. Now the second thing that we see about the heart that hopes in God from these two psalms is that we see that the heart that hopes in God longs for him with deepest affection. We long for him with deepest affection. Now, Um, I did not grow up living close to my grandparents. I've always been close to them, but we never lived close. Uh, We would maybe see each other four or five times a year. And I remember how excited I would get 
when I, when I knew they were coming to visit us. Uh, their visits were the highlight of my year. So I remember how the, in the days uh, leading up to their arrival, the hours seemed to drag on and drag on. It was like time would just slow down the closer that they got, especially if I was in school. It just made school agony. And my sister and I, on the day when we knew they were supposed to be there, we would stare at the window and at the highway in front of our house, just looking and longing for that green Astro van to turn and come up our little driveway, or, or for my, my mom's parents to come and, um, and, well, they had a nicer car. But um, anyway, just to see them coming. You get a sense of that longing, what that longing looks like here in the second part of Psalm 130. And we see in this that the heart that hopes in God longs for God. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. What you notice about these verses is the way that the psalmist's knowledge of who God is fuels his heart to hope in God and his desire to wait on God. This is what it looks like to live by faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we are told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and that by it the people of old received their commendation. In fact, just a uh, verse prior to that, the author of Hebrews says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Because our psalmist understood that God is eager to forgive, he cried to him. And because he trusted in what God had promised in his work about his deliverance, about his forgiveness, he says that his soul waited on the Lord. Now there are two things to notice here about the psalmist and how he talks about his waiting on the Lord here. Notice first and foremost that his hope was held secure by what God had declared about himself. The second part of verse 5, this is what he says. He says, I wait for the Lord in his word, I hope. So this hope, when we talk about hope, sometimes we talk about I hope this will happen or I wish this would happen. This is not wishful thinking. This is not hoping that God might do this. No, hoping in God is taking up confidence in response to what God has said about himself. We know about God's forgiveness because God has spoken. We know that with the Lord there is steadfast love because he has spoken. We know that with God there is plentiful redemption, that he has promised to redeem his people from their iniquities because he says so. So the psalmist says that he is taking up his hope in God's word. This is what makes the Bible such a fine and rare jewel. You can read lots of theological books, but there's something special about the Bible because it has authority as God's word that assures our soul and anchors our hope in truth. Faith believes what God says and it responds to him with heartfelt, glad obedience. And that's what brings us to the second thing that we need to see about the way the psalmist describes how his heart waited on God. Notice that in his hope, in, notice how his hope in God made him long for God with the deepest affections of his heart. 
In verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And we get an idea of the passion and the sincerity of this hope in God and the desire for God from the way that the psalmist repeats himself, saying, More than watchmen for the morning. Now, in the ancient world, uh, you would post watchmen or sentinels on the walls of your city. Their job was to keep watch at night. It's hard to see things at night. And that's when threats lurk about, when they're most dangerous. I think about all the times that I've been out in the dark imagining what all those snaps of the trees and twigs and the wind, what could possibly be there. And then the dawning of the sun happens and you realize and you just get this sense of hope. It's something you can't, it's really hard to describe to be honest. Because there's all these questions and doubts and fears even though you know it's coming. My watch tells me to the minute when that sunrise is going to come. And yet when that breaks, your heart is full of joy. There's, you can't replicate that. And David uses that as a picture, or sorry, the psalmist here uses that as a picture of the way his heart is looking for and yearning for the arrival of the Lord. As the dawning of the sun brings light and life and a sense of comfort and security, so the psalmist is, who is crying out to God from the depths looks with eager longing for God, for his forgiveness, and for his restoration. A watchman knows that dawn is coming, but that doesn't mean that he can slack off as he waits for it throughout the night. And the psalmist draws this comparison to the way that they wait for the dawn of the sun, to the way he waits on the Lord. And you get the sense that he is waiting on the sure promises of God with a deep, deep longing. He knows that God is faithful to redeem. And that fuels his heart to hope in God with, with, with more fervor than a wary sentry who stands on a wall. And we, we see that expressed here. And it's meant, to, it's meant to be a model for us. This is the sort of waiting that we are called to have. It, it takes patience. It takes endurance. It's founded on the steadfast promises of God. The psalmist's hope isn't a sort of wishful thinking that God might do something. It's a confidence that he will come and that he will redeem his people. And that, that confidence then drives his faith to hope in God against all other hopes. What's more, it leads him to say to the whole nation of Israel, to God's people, to those who had been called by God to be his people, to whom he had said he would be their God, to hope in him. It's because we know that with the Lord there is steadfast love that we're able to wait on him with the sort of eager longing that the psalmist talks about. It's because we know that with him there is plentiful redemption from sin that we're able to cease from our strivings and from trying to earn his favor to trust wholly in him. It's because he has always fulfilled his very great promises that we're able to look at the future and to know that even as a darkness seems to close in, that we serve the God who is in control. And that we know that when we stand before God on that final day, we will have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who will say to the Father on behalf of all who trust in him, This one is mine. I died for them. And I love them. They have found the redemption that is with me. This hope means that while we must wait on that day 
when all of God's promises will be fulfilled, when he makes all things new, we can wait for him with eager longing, partaking of the joy of his presence even now. The joy of hope in Christ is only a foretaste of what is to come. And it should make each and every one of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior to hope in him with eager longing for the day when our faith will become sight and we will experience him in his fullness. But, as it is, for now, we trust in his word, we experience his love, and we long for the day when our faith will give way to seeing things in its full reality. Now the third characteristic of the heart that hopes in God we see is that the heart that hopes in God finds contentment in humility. Have you ever felt small? I don't mean that you just have someone who could be a lineman for the Green Bay Packers walk past you. I mean, have you ever been floored so that you looked at your life like a grain of sand on the beach, like a molecule in the ocean, like a bit of vapor on the wind? So... I remember spending two weeks in a city of over 26 million people, just one city on the other side of the world. And I remember thinking to myself as I was walking down these streets that everyone that I see here has a life, they have a family, they have a career, they have something that they do, which they do every day while I'm asleep with no regard and no care that I exist. And I thought to myself, wow, Philip, you have severely overestimated the significance of your life and the impact you have on this world. And then that led me to think about all the people who have ever lived in history and how God created each one of them with their own unique personalities, with their own unique stories and circumstances, each according to his own perfect plan each one with a unique role to play in the story of his glory. And it just floored me. And I realized that not only do I look at the world through a coffee straw and miss so much of what's going on, all of which God is fully aware of, that also that um, I realized that my own view of God at that moment was just too small. Because it's really comfortable to hear certain things within your own perfect, your own little context and think, oh yeah, that's true. And then to realize that there are billions of people here on earth and they're unaware of who I am. Hearing that God knows every one of our needs, that he has numbered the very hairs of our head, that's really heartwarming and encouraging. It's easy to believe if the your view of the world centers around you. But to be confronted with the reality that he doesn't just say that about you, but that he says that about everyone. That he made every one of the fish that are in the sea, and the birds of the air, and the animals, and the stars, and the planets, and the galaxies, and that they exist for his own pleasure. That there are, there are beings at the bottom of the sea, fish that we are completely unaware of. And they exist before God's glory. To know that he sustains them, that he keeps them, 
that he has a point and a purpose for every single one of them. That will make you feel very, very small. It feels like looking up at the sky on a clear summer night up north, being confronted with the sheer massiveness of the universe, to to look up at the stars and, and feel like you're about to fall off. I talk about a gut check. All I can say is that as we think about those things, we realize God truly is unfathomable. You cannot exhaust Him. We are, each one of us, fearfully and wonderfully made by God. But brothers and sisters, don't be mistaken. This is God's story. We are the supporting cast, notes in the magnum opus of the God's glorious symphony. In Psalm 131, we learn that the heart that hopes in God finds contentment and humility before him. Here, David, the author of this psalm, helps us to feel the gravity of what it means to know God, to hope in God, and to have him as the treasure of our souls. This is a psalm that is meant to equip us to fight the pride that is always lurking and seeking opportunity in our own hearts. He says, O Lord, My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great for me. These opening words sound like the introduction to another song of lament, don't they? But they're not. This is a song of contrition. This is a song that flows out of the heart of a person who is feeling their smallness. Our fallen nature has a way of always making us feel and think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Just look at social media. Everyone has a platform to speak, whether they have earned that right or not. It's good for us here to follow David's example, to shut our mouths before God in the glory of his splendor, to join Job in the ashes with our hands over our mouth, confessing how at so many times I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 131, David speaks of three ways that he has taken steps to guard himself from pride in the presence of God. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up which means that the desires and the affections of his heart were not too great in himself, that he had come to see his smallness. I don't think that David is saying he's depressed so much here as he is saying that he has embraced humility that reaches to the very core of who he is. Furthermore, in the next line, he says, my eyes are not raised too high. David knew that God hates haughty eyes, So he had chosen to flee from pride with what he looked at. We see this attitude of humility coming out in the way that he speaks about what he pursues, about his aspirations, his thoughts, and his desires. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In the place of these things, David says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now this is a very vivid description that I can relate to. When Rebecca is hungry, everybody knows about it. If the milk is not in her mouth in 10 seconds, it's like she screams like she's being murdered. 
She, she will root, if you hold her like this, she'll root around on your shoulder frantically looking for milk. There is no secret whether she's hungry. She lets you know about it. It's all she can think about. And therefore, it's all you can think about it too because of the way she cries. David does not describe himself here as an infant that is frantically looking for milk. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. A a weaned child still has needs. He still depends on his parents to feed him. But he's able to rest. He's able to be calm because he knows that his mother cares for him. He knows that he is not going to be forgotten, that he can trust his mother. And there is no comfort in the world to a child than the presence and the promise of his parents. A heart that hopes in God must humble itself before him. Humility is the seedbed of faith because faith trusts in the sufficiency of God's promises for us. It sees that God, our creator, is the gracious lover of our souls who calls us his bone beloved children, who has provided redemption for us through his son, who calls us to wait on him and renews us day to day, giving us everything we need. Jesus told his disciples, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It is the joy of every good, good, every, every good parent to provide for their children what they need. God is a good, good father who delights in pouring out the, his blessings and his mercy on sinners like you and me to the glory of his own beloved son, Jesus Christ. This call to embrace humility has a direct bearing on how we live in light of God's promises. In Psalm 37, David instructs us, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. What fitting words for our current situation. David concludes this psalm by extending this contentment in God to God's people, to Israel. He commands, O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So the right response to the faithfulness of God with whom is steadfast love and redemption that is plentiful is to hope in him. And this is a hope that endures forever. So, church, hope in God. He is the redeemer of sinners. His deliverance is sure. It is worthy of your hope. Embrace this humility like David and find contentment for your soul so that whether you are in circumstances that are joyful or whether you're in circumstances that are painful, you have a hope that endures. Praise God for how he's brought this together 
in the work of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we look out on this world and we see the suffering that is there, our hearts, we confess, our, our, we, we, we want to know what you were doing and how you were doing it. Many times in our prayers, Father, we wrestle, we writhe, we feel more like a, a child that is looking for milk than a, a child that is calmly sitting on the lap of, of his mother. So we ask, Father, that as we have read your word today, as we have seen the psalmist declare this hope that endures, that you would give us peace, that we would fear you and love you and know that your steadfast love has not gone away and that your promises are rock solid. And we pray, Father, in the coming week that you would teach us to hope in you that we would lament over the evil that is in our world, but that we would also rejoice in the great redemption that is with you, which we have received for the work of Christ on the cross. I pray, Father, that even as we quiet our own souls in this, that you would equip us to be able to speak this message of life and peace into the lives of those who, who you have placed us in contact with, who do not know this, we pray, Father, that you would work through the power of your Spirit to exalt Christ as the gospel is declared. And we pray, Father, that you would keep your church and build it, and that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, and that we would rest in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.